a study of the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings. It might seem natural to begin at, well, the beginning. But if there is a beginning, then there's also an end. And sometimes, when possible, it can be quite illuminating to look at the beginning from the vantage point of the end. With novels or movies, I typically don't want to know how it ends ahead of time. But with the true story of history, since God has graciously told us about the end, taking a peek at the end surely won't hinder our enjoyment of the story along the way. Thus, in Revelation 22.13, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Here, at the end, Jesus identifies himself as both the beginning and the end in an absolute kind of way. Jesus claims a unique supremacy over all things, time, space, matter. He is Lord of it all. Thus, when he claims to be the beginning, I think he means, at least in part, that we ought to seek to understand the beginning in connection with him. In other words, our reading of the book of Genesis, of the beginning of the book of Genesis, must look for the ways it shows us Jesus. This should influence what questions we ask and what answers we should expect the account of creation to give us. My goal in preaching Genesis 1 over the next few weeks will be to keep our focus on the main thing. My goal will be to help us not get distracted by the wrong questions. Jesus will be the key to that. We are planning to unpack the book of Genesis together. This journey will take a long time. We will have reason to take a few scenic detours to other places in Scripture, and we'll probably step out of Genesis at certain points along the way to consider other matters for a short while. I anticipate at least two years to get through the book. Jesus has led us to expect that the book of Genesis is about him. Now, you know as well as I do that his name doesn't appear in the book of Genesis. The man, Jesus, is not a character in the story. But each story, each narrative block, each conflict, each character, and each theme shows us something about Jesus, something about the gospel. As you may have noticed, I've entitled the sermon this morning, The Beginning of the Gospel. And this matches the title we've given to the entire sermon series through the book of Genesis. The gospel is the good news, announcing that what God has done in Christ to reconcile the world to himself. The gospel can be summarized simply in five points that you can count off on your fingers. Number one, Jesus lived. Number two, Jesus died. Number three, Jesus rose from the dead. Number four, Jesus ascended to his throne. And number five, Jesus promised to return. All five of those points need elaboration, but that's a good way to remember what to tell people when you're wanting to share the gospel with them. The whole book of Genesis should be read as the beginning of that story. The historical narrative account told in the book of Genesis sets the stage and defines the terms for that story. When we think about the gospel as good news, we often remember that the good news has provided the remedy for some pretty bad news. And we often quickly think that the book of Genesis might actually be the beginning of the bad news rather than the beginning of the good news. Christians know that Genesis chapter 3 narrates the fall of humanity into sin and the entrance of death into the world. And Jesus has come to solve that problem. Yes, that's true. But the scope of the gospel goes beyond merely fixing what's broken. Indeed, the accomplishment of Jesus in the gospel has brought about a new creation. As we heard of Jesus identifying himself as the beginning and the end in Revelation 22, I mentioned how what has a beginning, we can surely expect to have an end. And before we begin looking at the beginning, we need to recognize that the end that's been described for us in the book of Revelation was not a new end. The new creation described in the final two chapters of the Bible was always the God-intended end of the story begun in the first two chapters of the Bible. 
If Jesus is the beginning and the end, then I think it's appropriate to recognize that Jesus was always God's planned means of getting from beginning to end. The original creation described in Genesis 1 and 2 was not what God intended it to be, finally. We mistakenly describe God's finished creation in Genesis 2 as perfect. The text never says that. It says it was very good. Very good is not the same thing as perfect. Very good might be quite unfinished, undeveloped. Yes, God finished the work of creation by the seventh day, and everything he made was very good. But he gave humanity a job to do with regard to creation that would develop creation, transform creation into what? God finished his work. But then he delegated work to humanity. To what end? You might be familiar with the term eschatology, the study of end times or last things, as it's often defined, formed from the Greek word translated last, eschatos. From the Greek word translated first, protos, we get the term protology, the study of first things. Biblically, we must not separate these two pursuits. Or, as I said earlier, we will find it helpful to look at the first things, to look at the beginning, in light of what we've been told about the last things, the end. In other words, we must read the account of creation in connection with what we've been told in Scripture about the new creation. But I'm getting ahead of myself. As we enter the book of Genesis this morning, we must consider it as the beginning of the gospel, and thus, literarily speaking, the beginning of the Bible. Thus, these opening chapters are not merely the account of creation. They are that, but these opening chapters of Genesis also provide the introduction to the book of Genesis, which will focus on the history of the formation of the family of Abraham. Some of the most familiar stories in all of literature, even today in our increasingly biblically illiterate society, are found in the book of Genesis. And every one of these stories points toward the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you don't read the stories that way, you cannot understand them properly. When the stories are merely used as lessons about morality, where we readers are supposed to follow the example of the hero, or don't be like the villain, we have not properly understood the story, and we certainly cannot apply it properly to our lives. This danger confronts us on page one. As the narrative regarding God's creation has been embroiled in controversy, we can easily give in to pressure to force the text to say something it's not saying in order to support our own ideas about the origin of the universe. However, I do believe the Bible presents us with a historical narrative account of the origin of all that exists. I also believe the Bible repeatedly depicts aspects of how God created all that exists in poetic form, outside of Genesis. The most important thing we can do is to consider carefully what the Scriptures actually tell us about these things. Since I consider this narrative to be an account of the event of creation provided by the Creator Himself, I believe scientists ought to consider what it does say seriously. If scientific exploration must be based on data, surely the data of the Creator's own explanation should not be ignored or dismissed. As Douglas Kelly writes, nothing could be more logical or more intelligent than to accept the information from the one who made it, from the one who was the eyewitness, from the one who is truth itself. As we do this, I believe we will find, if nothing else, certain limits provided in the text that rule out certain scientific theories as they are currently articulated. Still, in order to access the intended meaning of Genesis 1, for starters, we need to consider the typical literary questions. What genre is this account? Who wrote it? And who's the primary audience? As an introduction to the book of Genesis, chapters 1 and 2 are very clearly straightforward historical narrative. Now, that's not to say that there are not figures of speech and literary devices in these opening chapters. Not only is Genesis 1 and 2 an example of historical narrative, it is a premier example of beautiful historical narrative. 
The human author of this section of Scripture crafted this narrative using a host of literary features that help readers not only understand the message, but also to enjoy reading it. This is well-written, enjoyable-to-read Hebrew historical narrative translated into English for us. Now, in light of what I just said about the literary artistry of Genesis 1 and 2, the immediate question on some people's minds might be, are you going to take this literally? That's the burning question many Christians start with. And sometimes, oftentimes perhaps, the question is much broader. Do you take the Bible literally? I think the word literal is completely unhelpful. It can be defined several different ways. For example, I can speak of literal translation, literal interpretation, or literal fulfillment. And in each one of those phrases, the word literal means something completely different. And sometimes in conversation, those definitions get blurred and switched around. So please don't use this question as your litmus test for someone's Christianity. Don't ask someone, do you take the Bible literally? And if they either say, what do you mean by that? Or, no, of course not. Don't automatically assume they must be some kind of pagan, unbeliever, or a liberal. I'm sick of that kind of rhetoric between Christians. We've got to stop doing that. (laughs) There are more important questions to be asking. So let's set aside the literal question. Because the fact of the matter is, no one takes the Bible literally in every place. No one. And... As we'll see very soon, no one takes Genesis 1 entirely literally either, and we shouldn't. We must ask what the author intends to communicate. If he uses a figure of speech, what does he mean by it? What is the reality he's describing? Those are the kinds of questions we need to be asking. Speaking of the author, who's that? Technically, Genesis is anonymous. Long Jewish and Christian tradition has indicated that Moses wrote it as part of what we call the Pentateuch and what the Jews call the Torah. We separate the Pentateuch into its five individual books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And there's clear evidence in Scripture that Moses wrote Exodus through Deuteronomy. And there seems to be no good reason to question the long-standing tradition on this point. So I will assume Moses as the human author. And, of course, we recognize Genesis as Scripture. Thus, Moses wrote this book as he was guided by the Holy Spirit, who ensured that Moses recorded exactly what God intended in every detail, no more and no less. In light of the fact that the narrative of Genesis flows right into the book of Exodus, in fact, the first Hebrew word of Exodus is the word and, though it's not usually translated into English, I believe Moses wrote the Pentateuch by the guidance of the Holy Spirit in the midst of the Israelites' wilderness wanderings. Over the course of 40 years, while Israel was wandering around outside the Promised Land due to their rebellion against God, refusing to enter Canaan when he told them to, and when he promised to give them victory, Moses recorded all these things. Thus, I believe Genesis was written for the generation of Israel wandering in the wilderness as a historical account meant to teach them about who God is, who they were, and what God had promised for the future. Keeping this audience in mind will, I think, prove very helpful. The book of Genesis is divided into 11 clear sections. After the opening section describing the seven days of creation as a kind of preface to the book, a repeated heading appears ten times, usually translated as, these are the generations of, or something very similar. Moses has carefully structured the narrative of Genesis, alternating between genealogies and narratives, genealogies and stories, starting with a broad focus on all humanity, then narrowing down to the family of Abraham, all the while tracking two Lines of offspring, the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of Eve. Moving forward, God's work of bringing salvation and blessing for all the families of the earth through the family line of Abraham, all culminating with the hope of one 
particular future male descendant of Eve, of Abraham, and of Israel, who will crush the head of the serpent, executing judgment on him and all his offspring. Jason DeRucci has suggested an appropriately dense summary of the main message of the whole book of Genesis. He writes, The means by which God's blessing commission of kingdom advancement will be fulfilled in a cursed and perverted world is through an ever-expanding, God-oriented, hope-filled, mission-minded community, climaxing in a single king in the line of promise who will perfectly reflect, resemble, and represent God and who will definitively overcome all evil, thus restoring right order to God's kingdom for the fame of His name. There's a lot in there. There's a lot in the book of Genesis. And it all flows into that picture. The creation account of Genesis 1 and 2 then supplies an introduction to the book of Genesis, an introduction to the Pentateuch, an introduction to the Old Testament, and an introduction for the whole Bible. This truly is where we see the beginning of the gospel. It is now time to consider the opening verses. Open your Bible to page 1. The first unit of text is really chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 3. The chapter break after 131 should be recognized as one of the worst chapter divisions in the Bible. Remember that those verse numbers and chapter divisions are not inspired by God. The seven days go together as a unit, and we'll consider some of the features that hold the unit together and make it clear that the second unit of text, as Moses marked it, begins clearly in chapter 2, verse 4. This morning, we're going to focus our attention primarily on only the first two verses, but I will make some connections with the larger section as well. Let me mention some of the literary artistry at the forefront. We all recognize the significance of the seven days, and we will discuss the apparent nature of these days next week. But Moses has told the story with some other patterns of seven. Chapter 1, verse 1 contains seven Hebrew words. Chapter uh, verse 2 contains 14 words, 7 times 2. The conclusion of the section, chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, dealing with the seventh day, contains 35 Hebrew words, 7 times 5. Elohim, the Hebrew title translated God, occurs 35 times in the opening section. Likewise, the word translated earth appears 21 times. The word translated day occurs 14 times, and the assessment of creation as good is repeated seven times, though not once on each day. The climactic seventh day described in chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, is referred to explicitly three times, and each clause in which the seventh day is mentioned contains exactly seven words. And amazingly, there are 469 Hebrew words from chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 3, which is 67 times 7. The number 7 in the ancient world often represented the concept of perfection or completion, probably going back to the reality of seven days of creation. So, to quote one Bible teacher, this repetition of sevens is meant to quietly communicate the exquisite design, the otherworldly orderedness of God's creation and His character. We'll consider other literary devices and figures of speech as they occur. Let's now read Genesis 1, 1 and 2, our focal text for this morning. I'm reading from the ESV as usual, but the translation of almost every phrase in these first two verses has been heavily debated. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. I'd like to consider the text phrase by phrase, and you can follow along in your outlines this morning. The phrase, in the beginning, we've discussed already a bit. As simple as the Hebrew is to translate into English, it's remarkable how much controversy surrounds the meaning here. I take it as, appropriately in the context, the absolute beginning We readers are being introduced to the beginning of time, space, and matter. God himself transcends all of this. He is not bound by time, does not take up physical space, and is not composed of matter. 
As the next words in the verse make clear, he himself set everything in motion at a particular point. And Moses has been directed by the Holy Spirit to indicate the absolute beginning that has reference to humanity in creation. That's an important thing to remember as we read this account. Moses is describing the event of creation from a human vantage point, as though a human on earth had watched it happen. We'll see how he uses certain spatial perspective language, like above and below. Though there weren't any observers, the narrative must be written from a particular perspective so that it'll make sense to readers. Now, let's get one controversial piece out of the way, shall we? One major question that is difficult to pin down is how verses 1 and 2 relate to the days of creation. Is what's being described in verses 1 and 2 a part of day 1? Or is what's being described in verses 1 and 2 to be considered before the first day of creation? Or alternatively, is verse 1 merely a heading or a title for the rest of the account? Said differently, does God actually do anything in verse 1? I believe He does. The word beginning can and often does have reference to a period of time rather than a point of time. In fact, Jesus speaks of the beginning as clearly referring to a period of time. For example, he speaks of the creation of humanity as male and female in Mark 10:6, which Genesis tells us occurred on the sixth day of creation. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Thus, as Jesus uses the word beginning... Here, he includes everything all the way up through day six. Also, in John 8, 44, Jesus refers to the devil as a murderer from the beginning. Presumably, Satan became a murderer when he lured Adam and Eve into rebelling against God, as narrated in Genesis chapter 3. We don't know how long after the completion of God's work of creation on the sixth day, the serpent addressed the human couple, but it seems rather quick. And Jesus seems to suggest that that unhappy event was a part of the beginning period. As a side note, this does seem to rule out the possibility of billions, millions, or even thousands of years of history occurring prior to the creation of humanity. And it certainly seems to rule out all of the things that certain branches of science suggest must have occurred prior to the appearance of humanity on the planet. But I digress. Nevertheless, the context and the Hebrew grammar and syntax of Genesis 1-1 strongly supports an absolute point of beginning. And this supports viewing God's action in verse 1 as a particular creative act, distinct from the acts narrated in the rest of the section. As we'll see, the action is carried forward beginning in verse 3 with a series of ten words, ten verbal declarations of God. His work of creation was accomplished primarily by speaking. While many students of Scripture insist that each day must begin with God speaking, as certainly days 2 through 6 do, I think the first day is unique as it provides the introduction to everything else. And the Hebrew grammar supports this. We'll also see that day 7 is not introduced with God speaking. Also, this is suggested by Exodus 20.11, where Moses, the same author writes, for in six days Yahweh made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Let's press on in Genesis 1-1 and see how the narrative progresses. In the beginning, God created. As we've mentioned, the Hebrew title is Elohim. Elohim is a plural noun, but all the verbs attached to it in this section are singular. As I've said before, the grammar suggests a theology. The Israelites wandering in the wilderness are being confronted with the truth that their God is the only true God. He created everything outside of Himself. He has no rivals. Everything and everyone falls under His jurisdiction. In chapter 2, Moses will refer to Him with His personal name, Yahweh, in addition to the title Elohim to make this clear. Yet this singular God has in Himself a plurality. That plurality will be emphasized when God creates humanity. Since Moses is not writing an abstract theological treatise, these hints are left 
as hints, a mystery for God himself to reveal more of as his relationship with his people continues. We Christians have received that further revelation, and we can happily read this plurality as pointing toward, though not defining, the one true God's existence as Trinity, three persons eternally and harmoniously united. But in an effort to see him more clearly, to know him more intimately, we should pause here to consider the word Elohim, the word translated God over 2,300 times in our Old Testament. While we're quite comfortable in addressing him as God, and it's right to do so, we need to make a distinction here. Elohim, like the Greek word theos, where we get theology from, is not a personal name. It is a title. Referring to someone in authority by their title is often an expression of respect, but sometimes it can imply a kind of relational distance. For example, when we're first introduced to someone, we might refer to them as Mr. Smith, using the title Mr. with their last name. But as we get to know Mr. Smith better, he may at some point invite us to call him John by his first name. Thus, when we see him in town, we wouldn't say, Hello, Mr. Smith. We'd say, Hello, John. We'd say we're on a first-name basis. If we have a tense disagreement with John Smith, to communicate our frustration, we might revert to addressing him as Mr. Smith. And it would probably be our tone of voice that would communicate the relational distance more than anything, but the use of the title would certainly say something. Now, referring to our God as God isn't necessarily an indication of distance in our relationship, but we should ask ourselves what we are thinking when we use this term. Why not address Him as Father the way Jesus taught us to? If we only ever address Him as Lord or God, and Lord is another important title given in Scripture for the true God. Are we conscious that we are thinking of Him in terms of His sovereignty and His mastery over us, or in terms of His divinity? Does that say something about how intimate we feel in our relationship with Him? Or shouldn't we consider the practice in our praying in particular of simply stringing a bunch of titles together? where we address Him as Lord, God, Master, Father, Creator of everything, etc., etc., etc. What are we doing when we do that? We need to ask ourselves an important question here. Because we don't address other people that way, typically. What does that say about how we're communicating with God, and what does that say about our relationship with Him? These are important questions to answer. With regard to the Hebrew word Elohim and the English word God, what does the title actually mean? What does it denote? Simply put, in both languages, the word is the word for divinity, divineness, godness. I'll try to explain why uh, it's helpful to think about this when we get into chapter 2. I often translate the term Elohim as the divine one to remind me of this reality, and we'll see in chapter 2 why that might be important. Basically, Elohim refers to someone who is divine, who has the qualities or attributes of divinity. But we should be a bit more precise, and we can be. Within different religious contexts, divinity might look quite different, after all. The Old Testament helps us here when we recognize that Elohim doesn't always refer to God himself. And it doesn't only otherwise refer to false gods, those divine beings that people invent in their minds. On a couple of occasions, at least, Elohim clearly refers to what we usually call angels. Consider Psalm 8.5, which is David's poetic reflection on the wonder of God's creation of humanity. Yet you have made him a little lower than Elohim and crowned him with glory and honor. The King James Version chose to follow the lead of the Greek Old Testament, which has the normal Greek word for angels. And the author of Hebrews in the New Testament, guided by the Holy Spirit, also used the Greek word for angels in quoting this verse in Hebrews 2.6. Since the Hebrew has a different word for angels that, he could have, that Moses could have used here, or that David could have used in the psalm, 
English versions like the ESV and the 1984 NIV have done us an excellent service by translating Elohim in Psalm 8-5 with the English phrase, heavenly beings. This phrase, I believe, gets to the heart of what the word Elohim actually means, definitionally. It refers to a person or persons or personal entities who belong in heaven. It's a matter of curious interest. The creation of angels and other heavenly beings is nowhere clearly described in Scripture. That they were created by the one true God is indicated in several places, but when exactly in relation to God's other creative acts is not made explicit anywhere in Scripture. Moses may perhaps omit mention of the creation of angelic beings because he wants to keep the spotlight on the one heavenly being who matters most, the divine one, God himself. On this understanding, Moses' emphasis by using Elohim 35 times in this opening narrative of creation is to emphasize God's holiness and transcendence, the eternal one who exists as a plurality, who rightly belongs in heaven above, has also created earth below and all that is in it. We'll see more about this in just a moment. It's often pointed out with dramatic rhetorical flair that the Bible opens with the words, in the beginning, God. As to emphasize God's presence prior to the creation of anything else. Moses does indeed want to draw our attention to the eternal nature of God, but the Hebrew reader would not have made the point that way. Instead, Moses has actually utilized a wonderful alliteration that grips the listener's ears with his first two Hebrew words. Listen, the Hebrew sounds like this, Bereshit bara, in the beginning, created. You can actually see this on the front of your bulletins. You may not be able to read it, but there's a beautiful image there of a clay um, text of Scripture that's been ornamented where the first, the big gold thing at the top, reading from right to left, says Bereshit, which we translate in the beginning. And then the rest of the Hebrew there is the first five verses of Genesis 1. Bereshit bara is an alliteration. It sounds poetic, and Moses has done that on purpose. But the Hebrew word bara is the verb translated create, and it must stand, it has to stand as the second word in the Hebrew sentence because it's typical for the verb to come before the subject in normal Hebrew narrative. The word bara is unique in the Old Testament in that only God does this action. No human, no angelic being is ever said to bara anything. Nevertheless, we have to be careful not to overinterpret the word to make it mean more than it does. Sometimes in an effort to bolster the doctrine that teaches that God created out of no pre-existing material or eternal matter, Christian teachers will suggest that the Hebrew word bara means creation out of nothing. It does not. Sometimes in the scriptures, God creates something new out of something old using this word. The basic idea being communicated and the emphasis of bara is on something brand new. Because God is the only person who does this in the Bible, we can say that the kind of newness that results from this action is a kind of newness only God can accomplish. But we shouldn't assume that it must mean He creates the newness completely out of nothing, or that the creation was instantaneous rather than the result of a process of some kind. Sometimes He does it that way, sometimes He doesn't. Context will determine whether God uses some existing material or not, and whether He is developing something new through a process or simply speaking something out of nothing. He does both, and the word bara describes both. So what did He create then in verse 1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Hebrew word translated heavens is indeed plural. It's always plural. This reflects the ancient recognition of a multi-layered realm above the earth. We see reflections of this concept in Paul's description of visiting the third heaven, by which Paul clearly means to refer to the realm where God himself lives. The word translated heavens is going to appear 11 times in this first section. The ESV translates all of them as heavens, plural and lowercase, except one. 
In Genesis 1, 6 to 8, on the second day, God makes what is referred to as an expanse or the firmament or a canopy or a vault or something else that we'll talk about next week that serves as a divider between waters above and waters below. In verse 8, the ESV says, And God called the expanse heaven, with a capital H. The ESV provides a footnote that I believe would be much clearer to help us understand the meaning. Sky. Many English Bibles use the word sky or skies outside of verse 1 in this section, and I believe that is much better. We'll look more closely at this as we move through the days of creation, where we'll see clearly that the expanse that God calls heaven or sky in verse 8 is to be considered as part of the earth. For now, let me simply suggest that verse 1 might best be rendered heaven with a capital H. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. Verse 2 is then going to zoom our attention in on the earth, as in this planet we live on. Everything outside of verse 1 in this first unit is focused on an earthly perspective from this planet for the humans who live on it. There are several passages in the Old Testament that use the Hebrew word translated heavens multiple times where the reader must recognize that the author sometimes means heaven with a capital H, the place where God lives, and sometimes he refers to the sky. There are several psalms that go back and forth between the two. And you can't tell in English if you just read the word heavens in both places. In Hebrew, one word refers to both places because they viewed them as in some way connected. And God through his revelation in Scripture, endorses that connection. If I'm correct in thinking that verse 1 indicates God's first creative act, then we just read about God creating two places. And verse 2 is then going to focus on the second place, earth, to describe what what it was like when he first brought it into existence. He chooses not to describe anything further about heaven, the place where God lives, because that is not particularly relevant to human beings who live on earth and are made for the earth. Also, if my interpretation is on target, then it's probably a proper implication to recognize that God created heaven and everything that properly lives in heaven at this point. Thus, angelic beings were created first in connection with God's creation of heaven. Heaven, simply defined, is an invisible place where God and other heavenly beings live. If our protology is to shape and influence our eschatology, and vice versa, this is an important point that I dare not skip over. We were not made for heaven. In fact, there's nowhere in the Bible that suggests the popular idea that the final destination for God's people is heaven. Yes, the Bible does indicate that the souls of Christians who die go to heaven, but that is temporary. If I may use an analogy, if you die, Christian, you'll get to stay in the nicest hotel you can possibly imagine. But eventually, you will go home. And that home is the true hope of all of God's people, a resurrected world, a new earth. The souls of our dearly departed Christian siblings right now are longing for home. They can't wait to get out of heaven. Returning to the beginning, let's consider the original state of the earth as it's described in verse 2. The earth was without form and void. I have to interject a brief word about the word translated was. Some have suggested the possibility of translating it as became here, so that verse 2 is describing the condition of the earth following some passage of time. Many of you will be familiar with the so-called gap theory regarding creation. This view suggests that there's an unstated gap of time, possibly billions of years, between verse 1 and verse 2. The Schofield Reference Bible made this view popular in our country. Schofield comments about the creation of the heavens and the earth in verse 1, quote, "...the first creative act refers to the dateless past and gives scope for all the geologic ages." In a later reference, commenting on the phrase translated without form and void as it reappears in the prophets, he writes, 
without form and void, describes the condition of the earth as the result of judgment, which overthrew the primal order of Genesis 1.1. As, as Schofield reads the idea of judgment from the prophets back into Genesis, he explains in another place that these verses, quote, clearly indicate that the earth had undergone a cataclysmic change as the result of a divine judgment. The face of the earth bears everywhere the marks of such a catastrophe, which connect it with a previous testing and fall of angels. Thus, Schofield reads the fall of Satan and angels, which the passages in the prophets he's commenting on say nothing about, back into the gap between verse 1 and verse 2. This will not do, for at least two decisive reasons. First, this view rejects God's assessment of everything created within the space of six days as good and very good. If there were already a rebellion of some kind within His creation, He would have had to execute judgment against them in order for everything to be all good. You see, the problem with considering a gap here in support of either old earth creationism or any form of evolutionism is not actually with the hypothesis of long periods of time. That's not the problem. Rather, the problem is with what is proposed to have happened during those long periods of time. Second, this view doesn't fit with the Hebrew grammar, which clearly indicates an event in verse 1 with the next event narrated in verse 3. And God said... Verse 2 functions as a background parenthetical comment to describe the condition of the material God created in verse 1. And the rest of chapter 1 describes how God transforms and develops what He created in verse 1. Thus, as a side note, verses 1 and 2 seem to reject the idea of eternally existing matter. Instead, as one writer explains, verse 2, as it were, hits the pause button freezing the action so the reader may focus on a single aspect of the cosmos introduced in verse 1, the earth. In short, verse 1 narrates that God created the universe, earth included, while verse 2 describes earth's conditions immediately after its creation. So as we think about the connection between first things and last things, protology and eschatology, it's fascinating that Schofield should be the one to popularize a gap theory with regard to creation, for he was also prominent in proposing a gap theory in relation to eschatology. Dispensationalists like Schofield believe we should see a gap between Daniel's 69th and 70th weeks in his famous 70 weeks prophecy. I personally reject both gap theories. The Hebrew phrase Moses uses to describe the condition of earth immediately after God created it is tohu wabohu, often translated as without form and void or formless and empty. Bohu is never used apart from tohu, and scholars have had difficulty pinpointing a specific meaning for the two words separately. Tohu is used by Moses one other time in the poetry of Deuteronomy 32.10, metaphorically describing the situation of Israel right after leaving Egypt. Yahweh found him in a desert land and in the howling waste, tohu, of the wilderness. He encircled him, he cared for him, he kept him as the apple of his eye. The word tohu emphasizes emptiness, and bohu is added as a rhyming word, perhaps emphasizing the emptiness, the lifelessness, the unfinished state of earth as God created it initially. As one commentator summarizes helpfully, just as the potter, when he wishes to fashion a beautiful vessel, takes first of all a lump of clay and places it upon his wheel in order to mold it according to his wish, so the Creator first prepared for himself the raw material of the universe with a view to giving it afterwards order and life. The unformed material from which the earth was to be fashioned was at the beginning of its creation in a state of tohu and bohu. To it, water above and solid matter beneath, and the whole, a chaotic mass without order or life. But before Moses narrates God's work to form and fill the earth, he further describes the initial state of earth as God created it in verse 1. We next read of the darkness on the depths, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Generally, we associate darkness with evil and death. We learn this association from the Bible. However, 
God created a dark earth initially. We tend to think of God's creation of light as the first thing he created, and we'll discuss next week whether or not it's accurate to think of light as a thing in verse 3. Nevertheless, it's clear that darkness existed first. Isaiah quotes Yahweh in Isaiah 45, 7 as saying, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am Yahweh who does all these things. The Hebrew word translated create is the word we see in Genesis 1-1, bara, describing that unique act that only God does in bringing something new into being. Yahweh explicitly and plainly, even if poetically, claims to create darkness. The one true God, Yahweh, is asserting His sovereign oversight and origination of darkness itself. One writer reflects on this, drawing out some implications. He writes, Darkness is God's creation and thus subject to His sovereign control. The psalmist draws strength from the simple truth that even the darkness is not dark to you, God, for darkness is as light to you. Psalm 139, 12. Human eyes cannot penetrate darkness, but God's eyes can. It does not obscure His vision or impede His protective watch over His own. And it's important to notice at this point that God does not eliminate the darkness during the six days of creation. This means that darkness is part of God's good creation, totally under His all-encompassing sovereign authority. The word translated the deep is a water word. The original audience would have thought immediately of the ocean depths. Thus, God created earth initially as a watery mass, devoid of structure, order, and life. As Douglas Kelly describes it, earth was something like an undifferentiated mass comparable to having a room full of mud and water and heat pulsating like a moving blob. It must be formed and filled in order for it to function as the Creator intends. That's what verses 3 to 31 of chapter 1 will describe, the forming and filling of earth. Also notice the repeated phrase, on the face of, this is a common figure of speech. He doesn't mean literally that the waters have a face. Rather, the idiom refers to the visible surface. Again, he's writing as though humans were there to witness the event. He's describing what happened from the vantage point of someone standing right in the middle of it as it's happening. And he has to use some figurative language to help get the point across. Acknowledging the figurative language should take nothing away from the fact that a real event is being described. One more aspect of verse 2, however, must be attended to. Elohim's spirit appears as the first active agent. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. As he is elsewhere in the Old Testament, the spirit of God is depicted as a powerful personal agent. I believe as Christians, in light of the New Testament, we should recognize the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, here, he alone thus far, is described in motion in relationship to the formless and empty earth. The word describing what he's doing appears only once more in the Old Testament in this particular form. Near the end of the Pentateuch, in Deuteronomy 32.11, one verse after the verse we looked at earlier from Deuteronomy 32, Moses chooses this word to describe the way Yahweh guided the people of Israel through the wilderness, ensuring that they survived and made it to the promised land before they rejected Him and refused to enter the land. Deuteronomy 32, 11 and 12, in a beautiful poetic form, says, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions, Yahweh alone guided him. As a bird flutters around its nest, ensuring that the baby birds don't fall out, while also preparing them to fly on their own at the right time, so Yahweh fluttered around Israel as they traveled from Egypt to Canaan. Yahweh is being compared to a mother bird. God's Spirit is depicted as fluttering around earth in its initial form, a great disordered watery mass. What we know about liquids is relevant here. Liquids tend to expand to fill a vessel. But God originally created a watery mass, liquid without a vessel. So 
perhaps we can view the Spirit working here to personally ensure that the watery mass didn't leak away. The Spirit's original job in relation to creation was to hold it all together. And the Father began speaking His words that would form and fill and transform this uninhabitable watery mass into the planet that Adam and Eve and all kinds of animals got to enjoy. From our vantage point, reading in light of the whole Bible, we can see the connection between God's Spirit and God's Word, and the connection between God's Spirit and life. Suddenly, this line becomes significantly pregnant. We can already anticipate that if the Spirit is on the scene, then God must be about to speak, and to speak powerfully. And if the Spirit is in this wasteland, this lifeless, watery desert, then God must be about to impart life. To anticipate the climax of creation in the creation of humanity, one writer draws out how the mention of the Spirit here indicates, quote, that God is about to breathe life into the lifeless wasteland to cause the barren, empty earth to flower and flourish and become inhabitable by all God's creatures, made alive, The world will provide a beautiful, bountiful home for the living soul that God will create and place there. As we conclude our introduction to the book of Genesis this morning, what else needs to be said? Ian Hamilton, Scottish theologian, not the Yankees pitcher, helps us think of the ultimate end, the telos, the goal of creation. He writes... According to Colossians 1, 15 and 16, creation was made for him. God's purpose in creation was not merely to display his power and sovereignty, but to create a cosmos for the praise and glory of his Son. Creation is not first for our sakes, but for Christ's sake. There is a God-ordained Christocentricity to creation. Thus, as we consider the beginning... We need to keep the end in view. Theologically, what is the purpose of creation? Why did God create any world, much less such a world as this one, as the one described in Genesis 1? I like Douglas Kelly's answer in his helpful book, Creation and Change. To provide a beautiful bride for his son, the eternal father created an entire universe and in it a world which previously had no existence whatsoever as the nursery and home in which the bride would be reared. Certainly other ways to answer the question, but that one's a good one. Jesus died to redeem creation. Paul tells us in Romans 8, 20 and 21 that creation itself has been subjected to futility, a kind of bondage from which it awaits rescue. We know that this is because something went terribly wrong after Genesis 1 in God's good creation. But we must not think that this somehow derailed God's plan for creation. On the contrary, since Jesus is described as the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world in the book of Revelation, we must recognize that the Creator anticipated and accommodated the rebellion of His image-bearing creatures even before He created heaven and earth. He created everything knowing that he'd have to redeem everything, knowing that he'd have to send his son into a broken and cursed world, knowing that his son would have to experience suffering and death in order to rescue both fallen humanity and futile creation. And Jesus did it. When he cried, it is finished, before breathing his last on the cross, a new creation was dawning. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. And two verses earlier in 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Mirroring in reverse order the original creation whereby God created place before people. Following Jesus' death and resurrection, he creates people before place. Thus, if you're outside of Christ today, if you recognize you're in rebellion against this God who created everything, you can have a new beginning today. God is a wondrous creator. He makes all things new 
and He can make you new too. He promises to everyone who trusts in Jesus a new spirit, a new heart, a new identity, a new and eternal life. Nothing less than a new creation. And everyone who trusts in Jesus, who believes the gospel that tells of His sinless life, His sacrificial death, His saving resurrection, His sovereign ascension, and His sure return, will enjoy a new life with a new body in a new community on a new earth forever and ever. In the meantime, we pray and ask for his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for giving us glimpses in your word into the nature of creation. We grieve that such wonderful truths are shrouded in controversy and debate in our world. This is not new. As fallen humanity continues to suppress the truth in unrighteousness, we should expect that your word will be surrounded with controversy, both in regards to creation and redemption. And so we thank you for the confidence we can have in your word that it proves true. And as we continue to explore these realities in the text of Scripture. Help us to have humility as we approach them. Help us to be humble, to seek the truth that's there, to allow it to reshape and reform our thinking. And we pray that your Spirit would be at work to clear the fog, to bring illumination to your Word as we study it together, as we discuss it together, and as we wrestle with it in our own personal lives. Help us to not give in to the temptation to be distracted by the wrong kinds of questions and help us not to give way because of pressure, social pressures. Help us to be steadfast and diligent in our allegiance to your word. Help us to wrestle with it. Help us to address the questions we can address and to ask them openly and honestly and not reject any questions that are asked. But help us to long for truth in such a way that we keep moving toward it, we keep seeing it better, and we pray that you'd fill us up with the life and the truth that you offer in Christ. Help us to long for home, our true home, the new earth, the resurrection of our bodies. We long for that day, Lord, and we know that it comes as a result of your son's return. And so we pray that you would hasten that event and that we would be patient and endure what we must until that day. For his sake, for Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen.